Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is a solo podcast because I had organised to do a podcast with a friend of the podcast, that's too many podcasts for one sentence, with my friend Scott Huntington, but uh, we ended up just catching up instead and we will podcast later in the week uh, for next week's episode. But for now, that's left me with a solo time to talk to the wall slash you. Normally, Tea with Alice is about talking about difficult ideas, a safe space for difficult ideas, uh, and uh, that, I guess, is more difficult to do when you're jet-lagged and talking to a wall. You can tell by the number of times that I'll say the same word in a sentence rather than finding a synonym for that word anyway thank you i wanted to thank everyone who's subscribing on patreon uh people are subscribing in droves which is really lovely uh, if you are not sure what the patreon involves uh you can you can donate a dollar per episode which is a really nice thing to do uh if you if you do that it works out about four dollars a month or you can do five dollars a month and get uh, any video content and a free download of the resistance which is my last solo show and any other specials that I put out. Uh, if you are a $1 subscriber, which is to say $1 a month, uh, then you get access to the occasional $1 post, or you can just follow the podcast. You can just follow the, the blog. You can follow the blog on the Patreon uh, for free. That's a thing you can do. You can just subscribe and follow for free, but you don't then don't get access to the $1 a month posts. That probably makes sense. I, uh, one of the reasons I was a little bit reluctant to do a solo episode rather than uh, one with a friend is because I am jet-lagged. I have come back from the UK to Sydney and it's very lovely. Uh, I came back slightly earlier than anticipated because I was asked to do the Just for Laughs comedy gala at the Opera House and it's a sort of a televised thing and it's you know, for me at least, a big deal. Um, I was very excited about it and I came back for it. I flew in on the morning to record in the evening, uh, which in my head was a sensible idea at the time. And I think in some ways it was better than flying in the day before. I have a weird theory that if you do the thing on the evening that you land, you're better off than doing it the next day when the jet lag has had time to to really kick in because it's one thing to be sort of tired from traveling and the jet lag itself is a completely different thing that sense of disorientingly being in the wrong time like the sun is an artificial light that shouldn't be on and you feel sort of dizzy and dislocated so I came in and I did the Just for Last Comedy Gala which I have written about on my on my blog on my Patreon blog uh, if you want the full rundown of that I can if you don't, I can, um, I'm going to tell you, wait, mate, that doesn't make sense. I mean, if you want to read the blog post, otherwise I'll tell you now more or less what happened, which was uh, I, I brought my fancy jumpsuit, my, my, you know, jumpsuit pants attached to a top, one single garment. I imagine everyone knows what a jumpsuit is, but maybe it's a different word in slightly different cultures I know I have listeners all over the place so a jumpsuit is a garment that goes from the neck to the ankles more or less uh, I think it's called a play suit if it only goes down if it's got shorts my point is I wore my fancy outfit uh, to the gala and I thought that would be good 
when I got on stage, I had that sudden realization that I've changed my register for the UK very slightly. One of the things um, that I realized when I first went to do stand up in the UK is that it's easier. It's easier because in Australia, my accent sounds a bit prissy. It sounds uh, overeducated or pretentious. Can sound pretentious, um, if especially if uh, you use big words or deal with big ideas. There's a, a people don't like it in Australia so much. There's a kind of a tall poppy syndrome, which is the dark flip side of the coin that contains our incredible cultural sense of fairness. I think Australia has an extraordinary sense of fairness that um, you underestimate until you go to other places in the world, that real, oh, come on, mate, um, attitude is actually, it's an unusual thing. It's a really deeply embedded in the Australian culture and I think part of, part of the flip side of that is sometimes a, a tall poppy syndrome where people don't like it if you, if you think you're too fancy, if you're trying too hard, if you are... Um, yeah, if you're, if you're trying too hard, I guess, if you're being inauthentic, um, which I'm not. Um, but anyway, my point is I went on stage maybe a little bit too high status for uh, what would be appropriate in the room. I had to downregulate a bit quickly. It's that thing of being on stage and just adjusting to the audience in the room and my reflexes were maybe a little bit slow on that. Um, but it meant that I had a heckler, which you wouldn't expect at the Opera House, uh, at a filmed gala event, uh, and it was very strange. So I sort of delivered the joke as I would normally have delivered it because I thought, well, there's no mics on the audience, so it's unlikely that they'll put this interaction up on the edit in the final televised version. But uh, I, so I just sort of pretended that I hadn't heard it um, and then afterwards I sort of addressed it in the room with um, extravagant threats of violence and that seemed to work in terms of people laughed and the tension of having a heckler was diffused. Sorry, I am so jet-lagged, I'm not necessarily explaining this very well, uh, but... It was an interesting. It was an interesting experience. Um, that moment of of realizing that it's a very female privilege, the privilege of being able to extravagantly threaten violence to a stranger, and it's it's funny rather than genuinely threatening. I've I've had that realization. I have some friends who are big men who have to watch out for seeming aggressive when they're on stage or if they're trying to shut down a heckler it's very hard for them to do it because they go from funny to scary quite quickly and I think it's quite hard for me to seem scary in that way which is interesting given what I just said about the element of something about what I do being a bit threatening uh, status wise or I don't know if maybe threatening is is too self-congratulatory uh, for the dynamic that was there. But it was an interesting thing, the violence thing. That's a female privilege that I have. Um, 
and just struck me very strongly in that I didn't feel that I didn't feel like that was an inappropriate thing to do, which if I was a man threatening violence to a woman from the stage rather than a woman threatening violence to a man in a joking way. Obviously, I'm not a violent person. I have never inflicted violence on anybody uh, except probably my twin brother in the course of childhood at some point. Uh, but... Yeah, that 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 was that was very very easy way to diffuse tension was to threaten violence, which in the world that we're living in, with so many threats of violence that exist, um, I don't know. It was just very stark, very stark indeed, um, that I could do that without feeling like anybody would, for a second, take me seriously, and brings me back to an old kind of pet peeve of mine or a pet pet interest of mine maybe the which is the idea of the reasonable man uh, which when I was studying law I found fascinating this idea of the reasonable man which is to say in law you know a lot of times particularly in criminal cases um, the case comes down to what a reasonable man would have done in the circumstances and the judges the judges determine that as a matter of fact, not a matter of opinion. What what a reasonable man would have done in the circumstances can be the difference between murder and manslaughter. It can be the difference between negligence and innocence. It can be the difference between all sorts of things, um, really life-changing things. And what a reasonable man would do in the circumstances is a thing that is decided by, you know, the judge or judges who are sort of technically and by professional, by profession, they're reasonable men, but they're not saying what they would have done in the circumstances. They're saying what a hypothetical reasonable man would have done in the circumstances. And when you ask who that reasonable man is, they say the man on the Clapham omnibus. And then in Australian law, the man on the bus to Bondi, which uh, at this point is usually a German tourist, so I'm not sure if the analogy holds, but... That is, yeah, it's a, it's a legal fiction, but it is a legal fiction that I think says a lot about the world we live in. You know what? You know what? When I said it says a lot about the world we live in, that last sentence was just me on autopilot, seeing how much time I had done while staring at the wall. Uh, what else have I been thinking about recently? What ideas have I been wrestling with? I've been uh, thinking a little bit about artificial intelligence um, because I have some friends who are very clever people, very interested intellectual people who are really worried about the potential of artificial intelligence and I've never felt that visceral fear. It's not something that frightens me, the idea of an artificial intelligence kind of... Um, usually the scenario is something like um, being given a lot of information and then deciding that humanity should be eradicated for the good of the planet or some sort of thing like that or a malicious artificial intelligence or a malicious actor or just an unforeseen consequence of some programming thing. I think the last is more plausible than the first two. I think for in order for an AI to sort of take over or have the desire to take over, you would need to 
you would need for the programmers or the scientists to have enough self-awareness to decide that human-like consciousness would require human-like flaws. You'd have to program in the kind of greed and insecurity and status consciousness or desire for acquisition that people have into a robot and I don't think I don't think people are self-aware enough to get that balance right to build a really human-like consciousness you'd have to you know I think a lot of our actions are are gut actions and visceral actions and chemically driven things that we then retroactively justify that theory that you know we're not as in control of our behavior as we like to think we are what we are in control of is the narrative that we then retrospectively impose over those sets of actions and <clears throat> it makes me wonder about free will in terms of of that in terms of both of the ai debate and whether with a a machine can be built to have free will, even if you build in very complex sets of potential decisions, quote-unquote decisions, those are not free will. But if you think of the human mind as a very, very complex computer, again, the number of decisions available to you is limited by many, many influences, but no internal driver, no sort of internal... Um, no, no purely autonomous influence. It's, it's all just a, a blend or a chemical complex that is determined that that determines your action. But there's maybe a thousand tiny influences on any one decision, but that decision is only the sum of those influences and not more. Uh, whether whether that narrative, that post hoc narrative that you impose over those choices is what we call free will or whether that is itself the consequence of all these tiny micro-influences, I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to think so if, if only to kind of squeeze some small drop of free will out of the whole, out of the whole basket of ideas which is, I don't know, again, I've just come to a loose end on that thought. Let me know what you think. It's nice It's nice to hear what you think. I really appreciate everyone who emails me. Um, I should have said this at the beginning, alicerfraser at gmail.com is the place to do that, is the place to email me, or at alliterative on Twitter. And uh, thank you everybody who's been recommending me to your friends I've had a few people email and say that they'd come on, on friend recommendations as well as people who've started listening as a result of The Bugle, uh, which is also very exciting to me because this podcast is nothing like The Bugle, uh, but I love both The Bugle and this podcast for their different things, for the different things that they allow me to do. People keep asking... People keep asking when you do this job or I imagine any kind of public performance personality stuff. What, 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 what are you? Who are you? What box do you fit in? You know, someone once told me with, with Twitter, if in order to be a success on Twitter, you need to figure out a type of tweet and just deliver that product. 
And I was never interested in that. I was always interested in complexity. Be, be prismatic, I think, if you can. Be, be willing to show as many of your facets as you can, I think, because that makes it more difficult to tribalize. There was a theory a while ago that if you, if you could split someone's loyalties enough then it would make it impossible for them to go to war. That if you could make them not just a, uh, uh, an Italian, but also a member of this club and this group and this association and ideally cross-border associations and cross-cultural affiliations and identities, it would make it impossible for them to create an other because you would have so many interlapping and over overlocking <laughs> overlapping and interlocking Venn diagrams of identity um, that they couldn't alienate other people. I think maybe the current trend in politics is proving that incorrect or maybe it is proving it more correct. Uh, I don't know if you check to see if the guy who you're having a Twitter argument with also likes Vin Diesel. <laughs> But maybe it would be good if you did and then you could bond over Vin Diesel and it would be more difficult to threaten them with the death, which is not a good thing, even though I was quite pleased when I did it the other night. Death threats are not a, not, not a, positive, not a positive social trend, I don't think. I was, uh, I was reading an article the other day about this Australian postal vote on gay marriage, which is, you know, incredibly upsetting, the whole thing. But uh, someone said in that article, I can't remember who the author was, I think it was on Junkie or Vice, but they were sort of sneering at the reaction of some Christian homophobes or anti-gay marriage activists, depending on how you define them, uh, sneering at their complaint that they had received death threats uh, for crowdfunding some skywriting that said vote no, which is an appalling thing to do, I think. Um, but I don't... It was, it was sort of the, the tone of the sneer was, oh, yeah, sure, that's the most oppressed group ever, the Christian bigots. Uh, but they weren't... It was a very strange tone, I think, to say, in response to someone's claim to have received a death threat, oh, yeah, you're so oppressed. I don't know if that changes the quality or, or nature of a death threat. Knowing that you are not part of an oppressed group doesn't make a death threat less threatening. I don't, I don't think the person receiving a death threat is, is conscious of the kind of the broader social implications of of that threat. I don't know that, for example, a gay person receiving a death threat feels worse because they know that other gay people have received death threats and large quantities of gay people have suffered throughout history or if it just feels like a death threat. Maybe it does make it worse knowing that you're part of an oppressed class 
I know that part of why I get offended when people are sexist at gigs is because I know how boring it is and how kind of hack and banal and repetitive and and sort of cumulative that kind of stuff is so maybe it is more impactful when you are part of an oppressed group if you receive a death threat but I don't think it makes you know the poor homophobe feel less threatened knowing that most homophobes in history have not been oppressed which is not to excuse homophobia at all but it just seemed like a very strange line of argument to take to diminish um, the suffering of your enemy just because they're on the other side I don't know I guess I guess the argument in response would be that they have caused a huge amount of pain themselves and so they deserve that death threat but I don't know if anyone deserves a death threat except that guy who heckled me in the audience at the opera house <laughs> guys I am going to regret putting up this podcast I can tell this is barely coherent and almost inexcusable to put up as a piece of of a piece of tea with Alice as a project uh, be kind but uh, do email me alicerfraser at gmail.com uh, or at alliterative on twitter um, if you have any thoughts if I left any or many of these thoughts completely unfinished uh, or if you just want to say hi I'd love to hear from you maybe uh, for the next solo episode I can answer some of your questions or read some of your emails so maybe if you email me uh, let me know if you mind me reading it out on air because I don't want to breach anyone's privacy but I've always you know I've always been so pleased with the thoughtfulness and depth of your emails of the things that you send me of the things that you let me know about your lives or your engagement with my work it is really thrilling and I'd love to share some of it um, I don't want to do it without your permission so let me know if you're happy for me to read it out on the next solo podcast and maybe it will be a slight well it'll definitely be more coherent because I will be less jet lagged it's another thing that like jet talk people talking about jet lag is one of the most boring things in the world uh, but like like people talking about uh, hashtag everyday sexism, it's uh, only boring because it keeps happening. And it's only uh, cliche because it's true. And uh, airline food really isn't that good. <laughs> but it is a marvel of modern culinary engineering, given that they have to make you know hundreds of meals and they have to be able to be deep frozen and then flash microwaved and served at you know an incredibly high altitude where your taste buds don't work properly so uh everything has more facets to it than we initially think uh so that's that's it i'm going to stop talking now i've i've made it to about 20 
five minutes, or I will in about a minute, have made it to 25 minutes, which I think is good work. The wall doesn't look more interested than when I started talking to it, but nor does it look incredibly bored. So I'll leave it there before I say anything else too too much off-piste. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you next week, or maybe I'll put in another episode midway through this week to make up for this. Um, I'll get Scott to talk to me and um, I'll put that up this week. It's been really lovely uh, talking to you, both listeners and The Wall. Um, That's it. You're having tea with Alice.